This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, we're rounding out the first series of the St. Vincent Sports Performance series with episode 219, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Carey. Dr. Carey is a sports medicine physician with St. Vincent Sports Performance. Dr. Carey serves as the team physician for Butler University, and he's also a team physician for USA Track and Field. His work as a sports medicine physician has included serving at the USA Track and Field Championships, USA National Gymnastics Championships, and the World Swimming Championships, Big Ten Basketball Championships, and numerous other national and international sporting events. He's a former college runner, and after having some injuries himself, he stepped away from the sport for a bit, but recently has picked up running a little bit more. Over the past few years, he's run six marathons and he has a marathon PR of 257, which we will talk about in this episode, his unique way of how he trained for that marathon, different than most of us probably train. Uh, He also recently ran the New York City Marathon in 2019 in a time of 308. So we talk about that a little bit since New York is still pretty fresh to me as I just ran it for the first time this year as well. Any of my friends or family or people I coach, anybody at all, I recommend when an issue pops up and they need to see a doctor that they go see Dr. Carey. He is always the doctor Glenn and I go to. Actually, when I tore my plantar fascia, I went and saw Dr. Carey. When my son Marshall dropped a leaf blower on his foot, we went and saw Dr. Carey. And Glenn has seen him a few times for some iron checks. So, It feels really good to have a go-to person and go-to facility when things pop up. So I really hope that you all get a lot from this conversation. Towards the end, we do five tips for the everyday runner, but we get into Dr. Carey's story a little bit and some things that they do in their practice. I'm always asking for advice and tips, and I had a lot of fun with this conversation. Don't forget, friends, if you're local, come run with myself and athletic annex and train for the 500 festival mini marathon we are starting that program on saturday january 25th we'll meet every wednesday and saturday to up to the mini marathon uh wednesdays at 6 p.m saturdays at 8 a.m and we'll have pace groups and coaches and saint vincent will be coming out for injury checks and nutrition talks it's gonna be a really great training program i learned a lot from the training program we did in the fall and I'm ready to make this season even better than last season. So uh, information on signing up for that will be in the show notes at lindsayhine.com at the bottom of the show notes of this episode. All right. You all can follow Dr. Carey on Twitter. He is at Dr. Carey and that's Carey with a K. You can find St. Vincent on Twitter and Instagram. They are at Defining Sports. And you can find me, I'm lindsayhine626 on Instagram and at lindsayhine on Twitter. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joel Carey. Today, I am sitting here with Dr. Joel Carey with St. Vincent Sports Performance. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carey. Great to be here with you, Lindsay. Thank you. 
You are a uh, favorite sports doctor in our family. My husband, Glenn, has come to see you multiple times for some iron deficiency issues. I'm sorry that that's the case, but (laughs) happy that I can help. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're doing this series with St. Vincent where I've got to talk to Daryl Barnes. He's an athletic trainer and Anna Turner, who is a sports dietitian. And now we're kind of rounding this series out, talking to the doctor, the sports performance medical doctor. So, uh, Dr. Carey, I would love to kind of hear about how you decided to pursue this kind of career, first of all. Right. I I remember when I was in high school taking some of those career tests, trying to figure out what career should you end up in? And it always, I always kind of landed in the healthcare field. So then when I went to college, I thought I'm going to do something in the healthcare field, helping people and, and that sort of thing. And ended up thinking I wanted to do physical therapy. Then I realized that doing physical therapy means you get a degree in biology, which wasn't very exciting after my first year, a lot of science classes. So then I discovered this a career or uh, path of athletic training. So I actually went into athletic training, became an athletic training major, and uh, graduated with a bachelor's degree in athletic training, became a certified athletic trainer, just like Daryl Barnes okay. before, and uh, but while I was in school for athletic training, as I got to the end of my junior year, I kind of started thinking, I feel like I want more. There's, I feel like there's more I can do to help people. I don't want to be limited as an athletic trainer. What else could I potentially do? And that's when I, I first started thinking, maybe, maybe medical school, maybe a career in medicine would be a way to marry my love of sports with medicine to really fully help uh, athletes as I move forward. So. That's kind of how I ended up heading down the path of uh, going into medicine and then ultimately deciding that sports medicine was the career I wanted to be in. And so that requires four years of medical school, three years of a a residency program, and then a one-year sports medicine fellowship. And Mm -hmm. so after all that training, uh, I became a sports medicine doctor and actually started here at St. Vincent uh, now over, I don't know, 12 years ago and, okay. and I've been here ever since. So do you ever miss like the on the table athletic training side of things? I do sometimes, but I get a good fix of that when, uh, uh-huh. when the fall rolls around and I'm uh, standing on the sidelines at football games, soccer games, uh, covering lots of sports. And, uh, I do sometimes miss some of the hands-on work and, and, uh, close interaction you get with the athletes. Uh, athletes, have a special relationship with their athletic trainers. They trust them. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're they there with them all the time. And there's definitely a unique relationship that develops there that I don't quite get to develop as a doctor. But uh, I still enjoy doing what I do because, uh, again, I have a wide array of tools available to me to help athletes. And, and also, we just have a great team at St. Vincent, yeah. you know, where I can do my role and then have our athletic trainers and physical therapists do their roles and our sports dietitian, sports psychologist, you know, it's just a, yeah, having that team approach, I think uh, makes me miss it a little less. So that's okay. Yeah. You get to know, you're right. You get to know the athletic train. I mean, you're sitting, you're like on their table for an entire hour. So you, you know, they're working and you're talking and you're learning about each other's lives a little bit. Right. Tell everybody what the range of athletes that you work with, like what kind of athletes do you work with? Sure. I work with athletes from the age of seven or eight, all the way up to uh, 88, you know, or older. I mean, I have uh, athletes who are in their 70s and 80s who are still uh, playing sports or uh, doing triathlons or running races. And 
Uh, so a, a, a variety of athletes uh, from all ages and uh, all skill levels, you know, from junior high and high school athletes to collegiate athletes, professional athletes, uh, to the adult athlete who just wants to uh, give themselves a challenge or just wants to stay healthy and you know, they want to stay active. That's me right here. The adult <laughs> athlete that wants to stay exactly, active. Exactly. Um, what are you working with Butler? Like what teams here locally in Indianapolis are you working with? I'm the team physician for Butler University also Marion University, and Ron Colley High School. Okay. So that keeps me pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> trying to trying to cover all those games and take care of all those athletes. So, Do you have a favorite sport that you cover? I like covering basketball. Okay, why? Uh, partly because at Butler it is the main sport. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the biggest sport. And so I do enjoy that. And then the other thing is that as a, uh, as a doctor covering a sport, uh, you have to be there, and when you're there at football and soccer games, it's outside, and <laughs> it can be cold and this snowy and rainy. And yeah, so basketball is nice because it's uh, it's climate controlled and it's the same no matter what. So, are you at every game? Every men's and women's home basketball game. Really? Yes, that's a lot. I do travel with Butler men's basketball to like the Big East tournament okay. and the NCAA tournament when we make it, and if they go to a holiday tournament, anytime they're going to be gone for about a week or more. Uh, it's good for me to travel with them just in case there are any health mm-hmm. issues that arise. And, uh, but on their, on the, during the big East conference season, when they travel, those are quick trips, you know, just a day or two where mm-hmm. they go to play at St. John's or, uh, Creighton or whatever. So I don't usually travel on those. Yeah. Okay. So most people listening to this podcast are probably runners. Right. So let's get into that a little sure. bit. And just so you guys listening know, Dr. Carey's a runner himself. Um, he actually just ran, we both just ran the New York City Marathon. Um, last time I saw him in the offices here, I, I joked and I said, did I beat you? <laughs> because I knew I wasn't fit to run super fast, but I had talked to John Grant, the athletic trainer that I see here. And he was like, yeah, I don't know what he's thinking. If he's like feeling like he's got a good, good training in him or not. So let's start there. How did, sure. did New York go for you? New York was great. Um, I did beat you. <laughs> no, just kidding. You did that. He did. He run, did you do 308? 309, I think, something okay. like that. Yeah, okay. somewhere in that range. Um, yeah, it was a it was a beautiful day, as you know. Perfect. The conditions were perfect. Um, and the the energy, the crowds. Have you was, ever seen anything like it? No, it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. I So that part of it was tremendous. I'd been to New York City and run in Central Park before, done some long runs where I've done loops of Central Park. And so the finish where you get to run mm-hmm. along Central Park, through Central Park was just so cool because I'd kind of pictured that in my mind before. And so crossing that finish line was amazing. And uh, it was a it was a perfect day. And, and I had really tried to set myself up to um, knowing I wasn't going to PR. Okay, you I weren't in shape for that. I wasn't in PR shape. I was in decent shape. And I thought to myself, I just, you know what I want to do? I want to finish strong because there are times where you set a goal for yourself, you're hitting your pace early, and then you start to really struggle those last four or five miles. And it's just a, it's just a rough finish, right? You're dragging uh, across the finish line. I wanted to finish strong. And so I really held back during those, you know, miles like 15, 16, where you turn on to first Avenue and the Mm -hmm. crowds are huge and everybody starts, you know, really picking up their pace. I really just kept saying, hold back, hold back. Just was, that was my mantra. Just hold hold back keep it, you know, keep it in reserve. And, uh, so I really felt like I finished strong. I didn't really pick up my pace a whole lot at the end, but because I wasn't slowing down, I was passing a lot of people as I finished and just really felt strong finishing. So that was amazing. Yeah. That mile 16, 
was my fastest mile. And I mm-hmm. think that that's probably the case for a lot of people because you finish right. the Queensboro Bridge and you're just like, ah, yeah, yeah. like I can breathe again. Right. I have air in my lungs again. And then the crowds are crazy. Yeah. Um, I kind of did the opposite. Like I knew I went out too hard, but <laughs> right. I also was like, why don't you just believe in yourself and do this as best as you possibly can. And um, my net, I positive split, but only by two minutes. So like I was happy with the outcome, but man, those last four miles, I knew they were going to be hard. Yeah. They were real hard. Yeah. Yeah. Now it certainly uh, wasn't an easy race, but uh, this year I ran both Boston and New York in the same year. And I had people talking to me about which one, which course they thought was the hardest. And so I thought, well, I'll know by the end of this year which one is tougher. And uh, yeah, it's no comparison to me. I'm curious. What do you think? I think Boston is the harder course. I agree. I do. I agree. And again, maybe that's just because of my training or I don't know. But uh, man, Boston just somehow with the downhills Mm -hmm. and then the uphills at the end just really really crushes your legs and, yeah. and your and your spirit by the time you get to the top of those Newton Hills. So I found Boston to be a lot tougher than New York. Okay. I know. We need to do like <laughs> a serious poll about this because, right. so I've run Boston three times, but I've only run New York one yeah. time, but I've been in like different kinds of shape every single make, time. It does make a difference. You know? Yeah. Um, and actually no, none of those times have I ever been in like PR shape to run. Um, but I, after coming off New York, I was so intimidated by the hills of New York. Um, but you know what? Every time you went up, you went back down. Right. You know? Yeah. I didn't find it to be that hard. Uh, yeah. And I knew what to expect at the end. Yeah. Kind of gentle rise. I didn't like south, that. Yeah. <laughs> along Central Park. Uh, and then kind of a few little rolling hills there through the park. But those just to me are no comparison to the, to the Newton Hills. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, so you heard it here. Dr. Carey says. <laughs> Boston's harder. And from what I understand, Meb Kofleski agrees with me. Okay, really? He's, he says that Boston is harder than New York, so. Well, and um, I, no no shade on Boston, but the crowds in New York were better. They were. Did they you were. think so? Because oh, it was yeah. more like consistent. They were, sure. Yeah. Boston's different because it's point to point. Yeah. And uh, not that New York isn't, but, but it's such a straight line where you're going through these small yeah. towns. And so there are spaces in between the towns where... Yeah. There just aren't crowds. And so then, but that's the cool part about Boston. As you head into town, you see the sign, you know, welcome to Framingham. And then the crowds are just, you know, really big and boisterous as you go through town and then quiets down for a little bit. So it's, uh, comes in waves at uh, Boston. Yeah. And I mean, I love the, the Wellesley section. You can't, you know, you can't compare that to anything. So yeah, there's definitely pluses and minus to both. So, uh, Dr. Harry's marathon PR, you ran 257 at Monumental. That's correct. What year? Uh, last year, 2018. Okay. Yeah. 2018. Was yeah. that a big goal to break three hours? It was a goal. I had wanted to break three and my training leading up to that indicated that I probably could. And so everything came together on race day and it worked out. So yeah, I I try to let my training kind of dictate mm. what I do on race day. I I'd certainly have learned that the marathon is not a race where you can say, you can, well, you just can't fake it. No. You can't say that, that, well, it looks like I, if I really push it and have a great day, I can run this and have some sort of reach goal out there that you haven't demonstrated in your training. And so to me, I have to just, I just have to look at my long run training and see what, what are things looking like? And then I base my pace off of that. And that seems to work for me. Okay. So this is going to be fun because, uh, Dr. Harry is 43. Correct. You've run seven marathons. 
you didn't run your first till you were 40. Right. So you've been working with runners for a long time and like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, dealing with patients that are marathon runners for years before you did it yourself. So I'm super curious to hear um, how you decided what kind of training you were going to do. And then also when you ran your PR, what kind of mileage did you decide to peek out on and, and what was the thought process? Well, this would be a longer answer than, That's okay. <laughs> than you want, but uh, I ran cross country and track through uh, high school. And then I ran two years of cross country in college, one year uh, in division one school. And then, a, and then a second year after I transferred at a division three school. And, um, and then after that, I mainly ran 10 Ks and, uh, you know, shorter distance races, some half marathons and things like that. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I actually tore the meniscus in my right knee and it was a pretty big tear and they ended up having to take out about 75% of my meniscus, which didn't give me any problems for about 20 years. Mm. And then my knee started to hurt and I would get these sharp pains in my knee when I was out, you know, for a run and I kept trying to ignore it, but it would, it would really hurt. And so I finally... Got an MRI and it showed that I basically didn't have much of a meniscus left and it was I was starting to kind of wear out the inside part of my knee a little bit. And at that point, I admittedly kind of got a little depressed and, and didn't run for probably three or four years. Gained, okay, so this is mid-30s? Yeah, okay. yeah. Gained 25, 30 pounds, something like that. Uh, just wasn't in a good place as far as uh, my conditioning and fitness goes. And uh, finally, at some point, you know, I was getting closer to my, I saw my 40, you know, <laughs> 40th birthday looming ahead, you know, in a couple of years. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been a runner my whole life, but I've never run a marathon. And I always thought I would have run a marathon by now, and I haven't. And I'm concerned that I might mess up my knee, mm. but I thought to myself, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, I'm, I'm either going to have a few years of enjoying some running and then my knee, you know, is messed up and I deal with that later, but I'd rather be, you know, happy and, and chasing after goals. And so I just kind of started doing some triathlon training, short distance stuff. And I started out just running 10 minutes. And then the next time I'd go run, I'd, I'd run 11 minutes. And then, you know, the next time, and, and I was only running, you know, two, three days a week. And, I just kind of gradually kept inching up the distance in the mileage and found to my surprise that my knee was handling it. You know, it'd been three years or whatever since I'd run and I don't know, something somehow, maybe my body had kind of healed a little bit from whatever I'd I'd done to bother it. And and I was able to keep just kind of increasing my long run and finally got to the point where I thought, man, I think I might be able to do this. And so I stuck with kind of a pseudo triathlon training when I started to think about running a marathon and I've stuck with that since I only run three days a week. Really? Yeah. Even when you did the 257? Yeah. And it's is that because you were nervous about your knee initially and you were like, I'm just going to be, do take this holistic approach? Correct. I was just, I didn't want to flare up my knee and I thought, okay, I'll run three days a week. I'll, but I need I'll, more exercise. Yeah. I'll cross train hard on the other day. So I'll bike or swim or whatever for cross training. And it's kind of fallen into a rhythm of three days a week of running, three days a week of cycling, a uh, rest day thrown in there usually. And, uh, and that's worked for me. I've been able to, uh, to do that because I, 
you know, I have a goal for those runs. Those runs are not just mm-hmm. easy runs. So, I, you know, I do kind of miss the fact that when I go out and run, I don't get to just go do easy runs no, a lot of times. Ever, yeah. you, so you really never run well, easy? Well, I do when I have a, uh, a break after I've, you know, run a marathon or something like that. And then when I'm first coming back, I'll do just easy runs. But then after that, you know, it's like one day is going to be a tempo run. One day may be hills. There's always a purposeful long run mm-hmm. scheduled in there. Uh, and that long run usually always does have some kind of purpose. I mean, there's a reason for what I'm doing in terms of marathon pace work or, or whatever it might be. And so then, and then the cycling in between, you know, does help maintain fitness and then some strength training thrown in. And that's been a pretty successful formula for me. And I find that if I do, uh, if I try to do a couple days in a row of running, then, then my knee does kind of ache oh, and okay. I can kind of feel it. So, and then I go back and I, if I alternate and, and I just, again, I, I listen to my body and, uh, if it's bothering me, then I do a little more biking and maybe some swimming and then maybe I ease back into the running and then it seems to work. That's yeah. That's so, I like hearing about this approach because, um, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. That's like, there's just not one size fits all plan. You just can't, everybody's body's different. And, um, I personally really love a long run where there's no pace work. So it kind of right. stresses me out because I'm like, but I want to run 16 miles like at 835 pace yeah. and not have to like get my heart rate up. So yeah. that intimidates me a little bit. But um, I've talked about this run less, run faster method. Did, have you read that book? It was like back yeah. in the day. The guys at Furman. Okay. At Furman University, you know, put that book together and have come out with a couple different iterations of it since. And and I did read that and uh, certainly found that it reinforced uh-huh. um, kind of what I was doing. And obviously that's when I'm, those purposeful runs are, are when I'm training for something, you know, sure. if I wasn't training for a race, then, you know, I certainly would just, yeah, go out for easy runs and yeah. But, uh, but the thing that keeps me motivated, the thing that I find that keeps me on track is setting those big goals mm-hmm. for myself, whether it be, you know, New York city marathon or whatever, or, or like running Boston for the third year in a row in April. Are you? <laughs> yeah. So going back there to try to try to crack the, the code at Boston and have a good race. I feel like I haven't finished well there the last couple of times. So and then I'm uh, also recently found out uh, I am officially registered and in at the Berlin Marathon. Are in you? Next September. So, yeah. Okay. So. I have to tell you, uh, my friend George was trying to get my husband and I to enter the lottery with him because you can enter the lottery as one person or mm. a group of three. Mm. And he ended, he ended, ended up entering just by himself because we didn't commit. I'm um, I'm a really bad traveler and I'm just get really anxious. So I just I was like, I can't commit to that. And just my kids are still really little. I get scared. So anyway, we almost he George, (laughs) he had me. He was texting me like, you know, and he almost had me doing it. So but now that I've done Boston, New York and Chicago, I'm like, oh, I might as well start you yeah. know, doing the other majors. Cause do you want to do that? The, the majors? Yeah. I think that's, that would be a big goal of, of mine would be to, to check them all off before they, uh, start before they have eight or nine majors. Oh no. <laughs> well, I know Is they're adding, talk? they're adding some. So for Are now they? it's, oh yeah. So now for now it's only six. I've heard them talk about adding a seventh in China. And then I would guess they'll probably add a couple more too. So trying to get trying this, to knock this out, yeah, get trying your to get star, this, trying to get my six star medal before uh, oh. it becomes uh, more. So we'll see. But yeah, so I'm excited that having those goals is again, like I said, what really kind of keeps me motivated, keeps me uh, training, makes makes me forces me to be consistent in my training. So you're a six day week worker outer kind of guy. Yeah, typically. Now. Yeah. Was that? difficult you kind of mentioned that you went into a little bit of a depressed state was that really difficult working with like athletes and driven people while you're kind of like in this moment in your life where you're not doing that 
at times it could be. I think I still found um, satisfaction in helping others meet their goals and work through injuries. And, and that was satisfying and, and rewarding to do that. And so the thing I found most dissatisfying to me was just the inability to be able to relate, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I certainly had my background as a runner and could, could uh, talk to them about that, but there's nothing quite like being in the room with someone who says, Oh, I'm, I'm running Boston too. Totally. And, yeah. And, and, and great, you know, Hey, here's, here's how you're going to, I'm going to help you get there and we're going to get through this injury together. And, and Hey, maybe I'll see you at Boston. You know, it's just, that's, that's, that's more fun and more rewarding when you can, when you can be out there actually, you know, uh, training and competing with, uh, your patients. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say, um, as a runner myself, I, I don't know that I would want to go to a doctor that's not also running and not that a sports doctor can't be a wonderful sports doctor and not be a runner. But just since running is my specialty that I like to focus on, I want to be in a room with a doctor who like gets my like thought process too. Absolutely. There's, there's certainly a, a, yeah, a comradeship and, Mm -hmm. and, a and a similarity, you know, between, uh, you know, people who are, who are both runners, you know, yeah. I mean, you just, yeah, you just kind of get it and understand each other. Okay. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is iron. Sure. Because, uh, I know that this is something a lot of runners either struggle with or wonder if they have a problem, but don't know. Um, it's, you know, so long story short, I mentioned earlier that my husband came to see Dr. Carey because of his iron. And, uh, this was in like before he even saw you, you know, in the past couple of years, this was in like 2009 and we had run our first marathon in 2008. And then in 2009, we can continue to do them. And I continued to get like faster and I would finish runs before him and he would just always be out of breath. And it just, it didn't make any sense that we were the exact same age. We were exercising the same amount and I think that I naturally do run a little bit faster than him for like a female than if you could p- compare him to like his speed as a male, but it just wasn't adding up. So he found out that his iron was low and he took iron for a lot of years and then stopped and then he stopped again. And that's when he, um, I think he was training to run like a 245 and he just really blew up and just wasn't feeling good. And that's when he went and saw you and then he came back and ran a 249, which is you know, like a five minute PR for him at the time. Yeah. It's uh, more common than people realize that iron deficiency uh, in runners and, and can definitely affect you. And like you said, make you feel like your legs are dead and uh, yeah, you're getting short of breath, trying to run the same paces that used to be easy for you and used to feel comfortable. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's always gratifying when you can uh, just simply increase a uh, mineral in someone's diet, uh, or through some supplementation and bam, they're able to run a five minute PR like, like Glenn did. So yeah, it's, um, like I said, way more common than people realize at the collegiate level, we typically even will just go ahead and screen all of our distance runners. Um, even if they don't have any symptoms, you know, we'll still check a, a CBC, which is a complete blood count, looking at your hemoglobin and hematocrit, and then check a ferritin, which is an indication of your iron storage, and if you're uh, low, then we can start supplementing. And the beauty in that is that if you wait until you start to feel symptoms, um, then it's almost too late. So if we catch it early and we start to supplement, then you can avoid those sort of mid-season or late-season crashes that can happen when the ferritin finally does drop and they start to feel really bad. Um, it's interesting that um, 
the normal range for ferritin for on a lab order or a lab test result, I guess, is, is really broad. Sometimes the lab will come back and say, your ferritin normal range is between 10 and 200. <laughs> and where is, you know, what's normal in there? And so sometimes uh, pediatricians or family doctors who aren't sports doctors uh, will, will draw a runner's iron and the ferritin will come back at uh, 15 and they'll say, look at it and say, oh, it's in the normal range. Uh, you're fine. And the runner's like, I don't feel fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we found in sports medicine is that uh, really a ferritin below um, ferritin below 40 in females and certainly a ferritin below 30 in males can definitely cause symptoms, can start to cause them to feel fatigued and tired and short of breath. And so my scale is different than the lab test result. When I have a ferritin come back in an athlete, if it's if it's a female and, and her numbers are below 40, then we're looking at, at trying to increase iron in their diet and add a, and maybe add an iron supplement and, and go from there. Okay. I, th- I just got this done because I did um, Inside Tracker. They sponsored my podcast and I did their lab results. And I think mine was 35. And it said um, they didn't have me in like the red zone, like, you know, this is really bad. They had me in the like need some work zone. That's good because uh, most lab test results would come back and say 35. You're great. Yeah. You know, totally normal. Yeah. But yeah, for an endurance athlete, 35 is, you know, it's borderline because all it takes is for that to drop, mm. you know, 10 What points would cause it to and- drop? Well, lots of things, you know, just the, just the act of running itself seems to kind of chew through your Like if iron. I ramped up my mileage. Right. Yeah. Just increasing training, harder training. We don't know exactly what, what does that other than we know that, you know, iron is an important part of your, of building your hemoglobin, which is what carries your oxygen. And so as you're exercising and, and, you know, making your hemoglobin work more, uh, then you start to, to need more ferritin. And so then it's drawing from your ferritin stores and that can start to lower your numbers. And, and so if you're, if you're, you know, not aware of that, your numbers could drop, you know, 10 points, 15 points, and you could start to really feel symptomatic from that. And so 35 is okay, but I love to have my runners at above 50 if possible, and as close to a hundred as possible. So if I can have them between 50 to a hundred, that is really good. Uh, for females too, you know, it's, it's also the menstrual cycles. You know, there's a blood loss there every month that, uh, males don't have. And so that can cause lower iron levels. So you're, so how much would you say, I know this is like a general question and everybody's different, but like how much is this fluctuating the like four days or six days that a woman is on her period? Because like, does, does it go down and then come right back up or what does that look like usually? I don't think it, I don't think it fluctuates quite like that. Okay. Yeah, okay. It, Cause it takes, it takes a while for your ferritin to come up okay. when you start supplementing with iron. So it's not a, it's not a drastic a thing. Like, yeah. It's okay. just that over time, females are going to generally, you know, they're going to have that okay. blood loss every month, which can over time, in addition to heavy training, start to cause their ferritin levels to drop. I feel like that was like a really elementary question, but I just wanted to make sure that I was understanding that right. Like, Sure. Are, is my iron actually lower while that's happening, you know? Yeah. No, I wouldn't say so. No, okay. it's fairly stable, I think. And it's more of a gradual decline okay. if it does start coming down. And then it's a gradual incline as it goes up. So it uh, it's really not a, a, a thing that's easy to raise. Uh, it definitely takes sometimes up to six weeks after you start supplementing with iron to start to see a difference. Okay. So when, some, when you supplement someone, and I'm just going to continue to use Glenn as an example because... 
that's he you've seen him he's my husband we can talk about him because i <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm saying that we can't here's pa- patient confidentiality but like he consistently still takes iron so is there ever a point where you're like it's not good for you to continue to take it you, you know over years or should you take breaks absolutely you can certainly overload on iron you yeah. can have iron overload and have too much iron in your system and so it's never a great idea to keep taking iron without checking your levels occasionally and typically, if I have a runner whose iron levels are low and we start to supplement them, then I will initially check kind of every six weeks okay. a couple times. And if we see their numbers coming up and they get into the normal range, then maybe I'll space that out to kind of every three months. And then if we get to the point where it's pretty stable and they're looking good, then we go to maybe every six months we check it or maybe every or yeah maybe twice a year, or three times a year, something like that. Um, so yeah, it's not a great idea to just keep taking iron and not know what your, what your numbers are. Um, is it okay to keep taking iron regularly? Sure. I mean, there is if your number, if you, if yeah, it indicates if, that you need if it. it, if you need it. Right. I mean, there is some evidence to suggest that if you're taking iron all the time, that sometimes your body's absorption kind of decreases and you do kind of have to take breaks from it from time to time to kind of get better absorption. And there's more studies being done on that. There was even a recent study that came out that showed that, uh, the best time to take iron was, in the morning, after breakfast, after exercise. So okay. getting up, working out in the morning, having breakfast, and then taking your iron was the best uh, rate of absorption. Okay. And it's also important to know that you have to take that iron with vitamin C. So you don't have to um, you don't have to drink orange juice with it every time, but you could even just take a vitamin C tablet yeah. when you take your iron. And that ascorbic acid, which is that vitamin C, helps that iron get absorbed. Okay. So it's important also not to take the iron with any kind of calcium containing foods or products because that'll kind of block the absorption. Okay. So a couple little things there that so are little So don't have tips. a big glass of milk with your iron? Don't have a glass of milk with your <laughs> iron. Exactly. Have a glass of orange juice or take a vitamin C. Well, so, and I know this is an Anna Turner, Lindsay Langford question. Those are the dietitians on staff here at St. Vincent. But um, can you speak to like high... Uh, foods that are higher in iron that runners should be eating and it doesn't have to be vegetarian but i'm a vegetarian that's okay so am i okay you are (laughs) yeah i find that a a whole food plant-based diet is certainly has the the most evidence in terms of health and longevity and that's kind of the way i've transitioned over the years and so are you vegan uh kind of really Uh, flexitarian i'd say you know is your wife no okay does does she eat meat Occasionally. Okay. Yeah, we eat mostly plant-based at home. But okay. She'll okay, you know, if we're out at a restaurant or something, she'll occasionally have have meat or Okay. And there and she certainly doesn't avoid dairy, but I definitely don't don't do dairy and uh and I'll occasionally have some like salmon occasionally. So that's that's where I'm kind of flexitarian. Flex- I, yeah. That's like the healthiest way to be honest, yeah. in my opinion. I, nutrition is so individual, yeah. right? I mean, it's all about what makes you feel good and healthy and vibrant and strong and and we know that as we age, it's important to get maybe a little bit more of some protein in your diet. And sometimes it's hard to do that all through a vegetarian diet. And so some occasional fish as we start to get older is not not a terrible thing, uh, assuming that that's okay with your ethics. But um, all that to say, um, there are lots of vegetarian sources for iron. There are two different kinds of iron. There's heme iron and there's non-heme iron. So heme iron is through uh, animal muscle. So that's eating beef and uh, some of those kind of products, liver, et cetera, those kind of Ugh. things that uh, that contain lots of iron. Uh, but there are lots of non-heme iron sources too, things like pumpkin seeds, uh, dark green leafy vegetables. 
Uh, you're right, Anna and, and Lindsay would be able to provide an exhaustive list of uh, iron-rich foods, but but certainly those are a few that can be helpful. Things like legumes and beans also contain iron. So, um, yeah, a healthy, well-rounded diet, uh, even vegetarian, can help. Um, there's people that think that heme iron is better absorbed okay, than non-heme. Okay, yes. Do you agree? Are you in that school of thought? I think there's evidence to suggest that that's true. Okay. So you just have to be a little bit more purposeful about how much non-heme iron you're getting. Okay. And maybe you have to be someone who does supplement with the iron more than someone who gets into okay. the meat sources of, of iron. Pumpkin seeds. You can just throw those on all of your salads. Roast them up and toss yeah. them on there. Do you, buy, do you buy them regularly? Absolutely. Yeah. Trader yeah. Joe's? They're delicious. Uh, you can get them anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I always buy fancy or different nut things like that at, in the Trader Joe's section. Well... Anna and Lindsay would tell you that uh, even going to someplace like Aldi's, they've oh, got true. tons of great options. True, true, you know, true. And, and vegetarian options there. They've got some uh, some pretty good veggie burgers there in the frozen section at Aldi. So, yeah, being vegetarian and eating healthy doesn't have to be expensive. No, and I actually just went to Aldi with my two of my kids the other day. I, I've been wanting to go back. I hadn't been in a long time because um, – I just found the more kids I had, the more I was like, I need a one-stop shop. We're going to Kroger, <laughs> right? Um, but I only had half with me that day, and I thought, we're just going to go to Aldi, and we're going to do it. And we already had, we had like, you know, it wasn't one of those like dire situations where you're like, we have no groceries. Right. It was like, we were doing pretty good. So it was, it was like a half grocery trip. And you're right. There was lots of great options, lots of inexpensive options, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, like tons of nuts. I bought a bunch of peanuts and I, right. yeah, my, my son was like, daddy's going to be so proud of me. I made these peanuts. And I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Cause I think we talk about protein at home a lot sure, and, sure. Uh, and yeah. we don't eat meat in the home either. Right. So my kids get the, in their head, like, Oh, this is protein. This is good. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, yeah. um, okay. Well, I hope that people kind of can, can learn a little bit from, from the iron talk. So would you suggest this is so hard because I don't like to overthink my running. Like I do this for fun. I do this because I enjoy, like you said, the goals and whatnot. Um, But like if you want to go after a goal, you might as well set yourself up for success. So would you suggest if someone's like starting out marathon training, would you suggest that they get like a baseline done? I think it's not a bad idea. It's certainly not. the top. Yeah, well, I, I, it's it's not absolutely necessary, but certainly if you're someone who's who's like, yeah, you're setting a goal, you you're really gonna you're gonna go through the the time and effort to put in the training and, and maybe you know even get a coach or something like that, then sure, why not? You know, optimize your nutrition, right? I mean, nutrition is such a big key when it comes to marathon training, anyway. That if you don't know your levels, like your vitamin D or your iron or some of those things, then um, you're probably not optimizing. Uh, and like I said, unfortunately, sometimes you end up three-fourths of the way into your marathon training before symptoms of iron deficiency show up. And then it's kind of like all the work you've done has been been for naught because it takes a good six weeks to get your iron levels built up again and, and you've missed that training. And and so better just to, to know up front. Yeah. And so it's it's an easy blood test to get. And, and you know, there are ways to do it without even having to see a doctor. And and uh, certainly you can then consult with a doctor once you get the, the numbers. Um, and there's lots of good information online, too, to kind of help guide you. But like I said, my only caveat there would just be making sure that you're monitoring your iron levels if you do start taking iron and just make sure you're not getting iron overloaded. 
What's the number that it's like, whoa, that's too high? Well, if it gets above 200, okay. you know, that's usually where I start saying, okay, we're, you know, we need to start backing <laughs> Calm off. Calm down and, on the iron. Yeah, we've had, uh, I've had a few athletes who were just very good about taking your iron. <laughs> and uh, it'd been a little while since they had their blood work done and we got their blood work and I had to call them and say, hey, I want you to stop taking your iron <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's, let's check it again in a couple months and just kind of have watched it sort of slowly drop because they stopped taking the iron and it came down to kind of a more normal level and then sort of had them reintroduce maybe maybe just a multivitamin with iron once mm. a day and eating iron rich foods and then kind of monitor and try to get it back into kind of that normal range yeah we have to remind ourselves too like i take a daily multivitamin and uh that has iron in it it's just not a specific iron well it's not as much not as iron. much yeah yeah, yeah. It just it's has a little bit right exactly just a little bit of iron it might have maybe like 16 yeah. you know uh, milligrams of iron and and when i provide an iron supplement it's usually 65 milligrams okay. of elemental iron and that'll be once or twice a day and in some athletes if their numbers are in the single digits like i just had a runner last yeah. week who whose ferritin was eight i think or something wow. like that and so those folks i'll even have them try to do iron three times a day if mm -hmm. they can if their if their stomach can tolerate it and that sort of thing and okay so we're gonna move to talking about five tips for, sure. for marathon runners sure. or just runners in general? Yeah, marathon training and okay. marathon runners, yeah. All right, so yeah. what's number one? It's hard to hard to narrow down to five. And okay. so these, this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but if I kind of had to say, all right, here's five things that sort of I've learned and that I see as a sports doctor that would be helpful. I think, and this has been a trendy topic lately, but I think that idea of recovery yeah. is so important, right? And I like to phrase it too as regeneration because- mm -hmm. It's hard for people to realize that the adaptation and the changes in your body are happening when you're resting, not when you're out there training. And I have so many runners who come to me and say, I've got to get into my last long run. If, yeah, if I don't get this in, then I'm not going to race well. And, and that's when I have to remind them and say, the work's been done. Now you need to let your body absorb the work you've done, you know, regenerate those muscles, produce more red blood cells, uh, make the changes and adaptations that the training is causing because training is breaking your body down. And so it's so important to have the right amount of recovery. And like I said, if you think of it as regeneration of absorbing the work that you've been doing, then maybe that helps you feel better about recovery. But uh, the biggest uh, recovery tool for everyone is sleep. Mm. There's nothing that really beats sleep in terms of the amount of research indicating it reduces injuries and improves performance. And so everybody's different in terms of how much sleep they need, but you know, at least seven to nine hours a night is key. And if it's hard for you to get that kind of sleep because you've got little ones at home, <laughs> then it's a, it's a challenge. But you know, if you can try to optimize your sleep environment, I do recommend that. Try to make the room dark, you know, room darkening shades, have some kind of white noise like a fan or something going in the room. Uh, keep the room temperature cold. 60 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. I love a cold room. Is the, is the ideal. It's hard to do that in the summer, though. It is. I it get is. yelled at for that. That's when the air conditioning uh, bill gets a little expensive. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, if you can keep the room cold, then you do actually sleep better mm -hmm. and uh, get better rest. So, so that's a big one, I think, is, you know, it's not going to do you any good to do all that work and all that training if you're not allowing your body to absorb it and actually cause and create the changes that are going to make you faster and stronger on race day. So recovery is big. Um, kind of going along with that is nutrition. Because, again, I sort of look at it as like if I'm putting in all this training, but then I'm putting nothing but junk into my body, 
then I'm just sort of cheating myself. I'm, I'm sort of negating all the work that I'm doing. And that's a constant struggle for all of us to eat healthy all the time. It's, it's tough. But one thing that's been helpful for me is the idea of kind of cycling your diet a little bit. So, you know, not everybody can eat perfect all the time. So if you can eat pretty healthy most of the week and then one day uh, of the week, you kind of let yourself have some some of that food you've been craving and listening to your body. Because if your body says, I'm just, man, I am craving some pasta and I really want to have pasta. I will then, not deny myself <laughs> some pasta. Then go ahead and have it, right? Um, so, so nutrition, I think, is another key. You know, when you're going through marathon training, you've got to fuel your body. And I also think of that, that one day a week where you sort of let yourself eat what you want as kind of almost like a refueling day. Uh, maybe you're trying to reach racing weight. And so you're kind of being healthy and maybe restricting your calories a little bit during the week. But one day a week, give your body what it needs. Let it really refuel and, and recover and then kind of go back to, to your, your maybe uh, lower calorie diet or something like that. And, and that will actually rev your metabolism when you have that refuel day. Mm -hmm. Sort of tells your body, hey, you know, I got plenty of fuel coming in. Uh, great. I'm going to rev up my metabolism. Then when you kind of drop your calories for the week, that'll help you shed a couple extra pounds. And, and that'll help, you know, again, as you, as you know, in marathon training, you know, uh, the weight does matter a little bit and you don't want to get fixated on that or obsessed with that certainly. But when you're trying to reach time goals, that can be helpful. You know, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like that also is like a hot topic right now. And like, people are scared to talk about that because of the prevalence of eating disorders and things like that. So I, I would just love to hear you, you speak on that. Like if someone were to challenge you on those things, what would you say? Cause I mean, like I, I can adapt to something like that because I really haven't struggled with an eating disorder. Um, but I'm, I'm really a big proponent of this intuitive eating. And I think a lot of people thrive on that, but it is true. Like if you're trying to take your time from a 255 to a 250, like it, it does matter a little bit. It, it does. And again, like I said, it's, it's gotta be, um, it's gotta be something that, that, uh, like you said, intuitive eating is a great way of, of doing it, but it's gotta be a, a the idea of, of fueling your body for mm -hmm. performance, yeah. not, not about food being the enemy and, yeah. and, and not about restricting. And I kind of said that word restricting a little bit, but I guess uh, trying to just say that if you're trying to reach, if you're trying to re reduce your, your calories to reach a certain weight, um, then you do have to kind of, uh, you know, change the way you're eating a little bit. And, and again, I'm talking about people who are eating the standard American diet, which yeah. is fried foods and ice cream and pizza and burgers and all that kind of stuff. And, and for them just to go to eating a little healthier is, will make a big difference in terms of that. But you're right. I mean, it is, it is a hot topic these days and certainly it's important not to, um, not to pressure anyone, uh, to feel like they have to be a certain weight because certainly there are the beauty of running. I mean, have you ever been at a marathon finish line and just right. seen the, Anybody the, can do it. Yeah, the variety of body shapes and sizes and, and people that come across? That's the beauty of running is that really anybody can do it. But if we're talking about performance, like you said, it does it does make a difference. And that's, again, where having a team like Anna and Lindsay are, are, are dietitians here to kind of help guide our runners, give you a plan and, and sort of help you feel like you can be successful without obsessing about it or, or without being unhealthy about it, I think is, uh, is helpful. Yeah. I mean, cause the reality of, of it is, is that I know that I, I, I try to eat healthy most of the time. And when I do like go on like a sugar overload in the evening or something, 
I really don't feel that great. I don't sleep that well. That's a sign that I'm getting older. I feel like the sugar affects my sleep and I don't feel as good in the morning. And same as when I drink too much. You know, if I open a bottle of wine and I have half a bottle of wine, I'm like, whoa, in the morning, I'm not ready for this day. So um, it's like this balance of like, I'm totally on board with not denying yourself of anything you want, but it's just the fact of the matter that you're going to feel better if you're putting foods that are supposed to be the foods that are supposed to fuel you right. in your body. Right. And and that's intuitive eating at its best, yeah. right? Listening to your body yeah. after and, and seeing how do I respond to this? How did this make me feel? And then making decisions based on that. And like I said, not denying yourself. And if you feel like you're craving something, then yeah, it's okay to occasionally let yourself have that, you know? And uh, I think that's a good example of just like you said, knowing those things that make you feel bad and, and saying, okay, I've got a hard workout coming up tomorrow. Yeah, I should probably make a different choice. Do, do you have a book or um, a cookbook or any kind of like nutrition book that you recommend or recipes that you follow with your family? There are so many good ones out there that they, uh, it's it's hard to pick just one. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly I've been influenced by lots of different uh, uh, people and, and get lots of great recipes from all kinds of people. You know, the, um, the Oshi Glows cookbook is great. I have the app on my phone. It's a great one. And then uh, um, Pretty Simple Cooking by a couple cooks. Oh, we know. use that one all the time. That's an excellent, that's I an feel like our, our, our meals are probably <laughs> similar in our houses. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and if you're a vegetarian, uh, No Meat Athlete yeah. is also a really good uh, resource as well. And um, another good podcast, you know, to, to listen to. So, yeah, there's, there's lots. There's just so many good ways to, to learn how to eat healthy. And if you want to eat plant-based, there's lots of great options and, and resources out there for you. Yeah, I love that couple cooks because it's vegetarian, but not vegan. And even though I do try to eat more vegan, I, I'm not totally there. So this has lots of options in that lasagna and that cookbook is so have you had it? It's amazing. So good. Yeah, we uh, we helped uh, test some of the recipes oh, for the you cookbook. Did. <laughs> so I'm jealous. We got to uh, we got to make that lasagna a couple times and then give our input on it. And uh, it was there wasn't a whole lot uh, cr- critical we had to say. We kind of said that is pretty much the most delicious. Well, the butter in the, in the sauce. I never thought to put butter in tomato sauce, but right. that like really makes it rich. And then the Swiss chard, I was like, will this be too bitter? But it's perfect once you get it with all the other flavors. It's delicious. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. I don't know his name, but her name's Sonia. 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 And Alex. And Alex. Yeah. Overizer. Good job, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number three. Yeah. So strength training, right? So we know that strength training is important. We as runners want to just go run, right? We don't want to, we don't want to strength train, but, uh, and I, you know, I'm no different, but man, it does make a difference in terms of injury prevention and performance. I mean, there's just no doubt that, um, the stronger you are, uh, the more your body will resist injury and handle the training loads better. And there's no doubt that the more power you have really, you know, just the more, the more you get out of each stride. I mean, as you put that foot into the ground and push forward, you're going to get a little bit more out of each stride. You're going to be a little faster. And so, you know, the beauty of it is that really twice a week is, is what you, is all you need to do. And I tell this to people all the time because the research bears it out. If you strength train once a week, you might as well not strength train at all. Oh no, don't tell me that. Shoot. But it. It'll help. I, I shouldn't say that because it will help you maintain whatever strength you currently have okay. to a degree. But the difference between once a week and twice a week is significant. As the research has shown that if you're strength training twice a week, 
your body will actually start to adapt and you will actually start to get stronger. It starts to make a difference. And then the beauty of it is that three times a week is not that much better than twice okay, a week. Okay. So that's where two is kind of that magic number. If you can at least get it in twice a week, you'll make a, a big difference. And, and as runners, it's things that, that focus on the posterior chain. And you've probably talked about this with Daryl here on our staff, but things like Romanian deadlifts and things like hex bar deadlifts, you know, are some of those strength some of those things that strengthen the glutes and the hamstrings, you know, are, are really key and really important. And then not neglecting the, the calf muscles as well, you know, on the Achilles and, and doing things like even a little bit of jump roping has been shown recently to, to increase the, uh, the Achilles and the calf's ability to withstand, uh, the, um, pounding of running, just kind of getting that plyometric strength developed. Gosh, I am bad. <laughs> I mean, you know what? I do reformer Pilates once a week. I just made a deal with my kids that if I said a cuss word, I had to do 10 push-ups because I'm trying to hold myself accountable since I don't want them to say bad words. That's not enough strength training, though. <laughs> Dang it. It's, uh, it's good. It's better than none. But uh, Depends yeah. on how many cuss words I say. <laughs> right. Yes. But uh, yeah, twice a week's ideal Gosh, if you can, if you okay. can get it in, so. I know. And I know you guys have these wonderful classes. And actually, I just saw... Um, Brian Sheeter, he's one of the physical therapists here. They're doing, St. Vincent is doing a strength training for a runner's class. Um, it's going to be Thursday nights, I think at 6 p.m., right? I think so. Downtown. Think yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. and that's 15 bucks a class. That's not bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, and it's customized for runners. Yeah. It's, it's working all the muscles that you need and it doesn't just work on leg muscles. I mean, it works on, you know, um, core and, and even a little bit of upper body stabilization because we need to be strong there as well. You know, holding your arms mm-hmm. as you're running for a full marathon, you know, there needs to be some, uh, some upper body work done too, as well. Not as much as lower body, but yeah, and it is at St. Vincent Center downtown, which, which is like really cool. By the way, it's a hidden gem. It's, it's a hidden so gem. cool. We've got this the view secret, is amazing. Got the secret entrance up on the fifth floor of the parking garage, and you come in there, and yeah, the beautiful views from up there. So and six p.m. like now is still it's like dark. And right. so you get to see this, the lights of the city. Yeah. Like it's a it's a cool view. It's a good yeah. vibe. Yeah, for sure. So the other thing that okay. I always recommend um, is make sure you practice for race day. Okay. That's the other thing that I think most people do a pretty good job of if they're training for a marathon, but it's a good reminder to me always that if I know that I'm running uh, Boston Marathon and it starts at, say, 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, when I usually do my long runs, I'm starting earlier than mm-hmm. that, you know, six o'clock in the morning. I've got kids just like yeah. you. I want to try to get that run done and out of the way so it doesn't interfere with family. But sometime during my training cycle, I like to try to kind of push that long run to maybe starting at 10 and getting up at the time I'm going to get up in Boston and having my pre-race meal and, you know, seeing how I digest that and how that feels when I run and then can make some some adjustments from there. So most seasoned marathon runners know this, you know, things like practicing your fueling while you're running, you know, how many gels are you going to take? How's your stomach going to feel? Looking at the race you're running and seeing what gels they're going to have on course, mm-hmm. practicing with those. If you're going to use their gels when you run, just things like that. I think it's just a, it's a key that is different for marathon training than other races. You know, you don't do that kind of thing when you're training, you know, training for a, a 10K or 5K. So, do you, okay. What do you do race morning? I'm just curious. What's your meal? Yeah, it's typically, it depends obviously on how early I get up. So if I get up a good three to four hours before the race, then it's I'll hard have a, to do. It is. If it's not Boston. <laughs> right. But I'll definitely uh, have a decent sized breakfast that can be oatmeal with peanut butter mixed in and maybe a banana. 
and uh, some coffee. You know, that'd be kind of a typical uh, breakfast. If it's a couple hours before, I might just go with like a banana and a cliff bar, mm. you know, and give that time to digest. And then if I only, and this doesn't happen that often, but let's say I only had an hour before, then I might just have like a cliff bar and then a gel right before I start or something like that. It all depends on how, how, you know, soon how you, much eat time before, you have, yeah, how much time you have. So, and then during the race, I'm really strict 40 to 45 minutes. I'm eating something and I'm looking forward to it too. Yeah. What do you, do you take something in that often? I didn't used to. Okay. And, uh, at New York, I feel like I really kind of nailed it, but I was oh. making myself I was really having to make myself do it. And that was taking a gel every 30 minutes. 30? I did a every, whole thing. A whole thing. Every what? 30 really? minutes. Were yeah. you nervous it would make your stomach hurt? I wasn't so worried about that as much as um, just whether I would be able to carry that many gels. And, and Yeah, how many did you take? Uh, well, it was a lot. It was probably, <laughs> yeah, six. Six, or something yeah. Like that. Six or yeah. seven. Yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, about six, I guess. And uh so, yeah, and I was a little worried about how my stomach would react, but I had practiced that. I practiced that in my training and my stomach had been fine doing that. So, you know, I think when you look at how many calories you're burning per every mile you run, you know, it's roughly about 100 calories, right? So if you're running a three-hour marathon and, uh, you know, 30 minutes, you know, you're going to run four miles in that time. That's 400 calories yeah. roughly, right? So if I'm only getting 100 calories back in a gel you still, you know, you're not going to replace everything. Right. But if I can just boost every 30 minutes with a gel, then, uh, I think it does help 30 minutes. I've never done it that frequently. Um, but I like it because I always want to like, it's not that I'm hungry when I'm taking it yet. You know, that's the problem. You can't get, that is a problem if you get hungry, Right. but I'm always looking forward to it. I'm always like, when can I take my gel? Cause I know it's going to give me a little bit of a, Mm -hmm. a buzz. So, Maybe I'll take it down to 35 minutes next practice, time. Yeah, practice the 35 or even go to 30. Do you advise athletes that now? You know, I tell them do what works for you, yeah, right? Of I course. mean, that's the key. So it, that I was something I wanted to try. And the beauty of marathon running and training is that you're always learning. Yeah. You're always learning. Like, for example, New York City Marathon, first time ever doing it. I was sitting out at uh, Staten Island for hours <sighs> and... The first seven miles of the race, I couldn't feel my toes. You know, it wasn't that cold. It wasn't toes, that cold. But my toes got just just sitting out that long, you yeah. know, without having them like covered up or whatever. Uh, my toes were numb and they, I couldn't even feel you them. You for the hand first, warmers in I your did. feet. And so, yeah. So next time I'm going to do a big marathon like that, we're going to be sitting out there for a while. I get to bring some, some toe warmers. <laughs> do you know, I was so lucky because I have a friend that lives in Staten Island. No way. And even though I was staying downtown or a midtown or whatever Manhattan is, whatever, the, whatever you New Yorkers call Manhattan, um, my friend was like, you can't stay there. Like if you can stay at Michelle's house, you got to stay there. So like we left our house like at like 7 30 nice. and like just rolled up we got it was so nice i'm so glad i stayed there because it was kind of a headache getting out there on saturday night but once i got there i was done yeah. we didn't you know so i felt super fortunate but i did not enjoy the long zombie walk after the race <laughs> You obviously chose the gear check option. Well, that was part of staying in Staten Island. <laughs> ah, like yes. I, I had to go, right. you know. Yeah. So, so there's two options. Okay. You can choose the early exit where you don't check gear and they <sighs> just give you a cape or like a, you know, uh-huh. a, a thing to you didn't a poncho. Check gear. I didn't check any gear. You just went straight back to your hotel. And so you can exit early, only about maybe 600, 800 <sighs> meters after the finish. 
and you're out and <sighs> on your way back to your hotel. If you don't, it is like a... Oh, it's long. It's a mile, I, mile and a half. I was on maybe? the phone with Glenn and then I was trying to find the, my friend that was there and I was like, <laughs> I don't know where I am. And then... I I um, tried to take the train because I was like, just be a big girl, like <laughs> do this, like you can, don't you don't need to spend a million dollars on an Uber. Then I took the train, and then I still had a mile to go, and I was like, shoot. And so then I got on one of those bike peddler things. <laughs> do you know how much money that was? For no. it was one mile, eighty dollars. Oh my gosh! And I actually only had. Uh, my friend met me in the hotel. I said, go get some cash for me. Go get some cash to the ATM. I'll you know Venmo you. And she got 60 bucks out. And I was like, I'm sorry, dude. I got $60. Like, I, I, I'm I, sure you're upcharging me, but like, this is all I have. I can't do anything else. And he was pissed. But I was like, oh, come on. Like, you took me one mile. Yeah. So see, anyway, yeah. See, lessons learned, okay. right? We always, we learn yeah. something from yeah. every marathon. Figure out so. a way to not gear check. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. If you can do it. So. All right. What's your last? Uh, all right. Last tip I'll give you is, um, and this, that, no, is this five or this four? This is five. This okay. is five. So this lines up right with, uh, with you. And that is that, um, if you're going to put in the time and effort to run a marathon, train for a marathon and try to perform your best, get some coaching, mm. you know, or get a, get a specific, get a marathon specific training plan and make sure that your training is actually marathon specific. I think one of the things too is that sometimes if you're just training to complete a marathon, then certainly it's fine just to go out there and run your easy long runs and make sure you get your long run built up and you're fine. But if you're trying to run a certain time, those long runs, like we talked about earlier, have to be purposeful and specific and related to marathon pace. And most of my long runs are usually always within like five or 10% of my marathon pace mm -hmm. that I'm going to want to run on, on race day. Now I might have a few easy miles to warm up and then it's, you know, maybe a series of over unders where I'm kind of a little under marathon pace and then a little above it mm -hmm. and kind of going up, you know, one mile there, one mile below. And, um, but I'm always doing something that, that is specific to the marathon and too many people, I think sometimes are doing training with their training group and, oh, we're doing mile repeats today. Okay. I'll do mile repeats, but they're not really doing marathon specific training. So mm -hmm. if you have a, if you have a training plan that's marathon specific, or even ideally more ideally is if you have a coach, you can kind of guide you and, and adjust your training because our training plans never go to plan. That's right. <laughs> never go to plan. Well, I know. And, and so I always battle with this because I'm not necessarily against someone like purchasing a online training plan i've created Certainly them myself not. or finding one online but you have to be mature enough to know that if something's going on that you don't have to complete a 20 mile run just because it's on the schedule like you need to listen to your body and adjust right and, and that's hard to do if you don't really know what you're doing like how do i adjust do i just take the week off do i adjust my run for next weekend and that's why having a coach really helps because they can say, okay, yeah, you did miss that 20 miler. You only did eight, but next week we're still going to keep your 16 on. Or maybe the coach thinks next week we should try again for the 20. So right. yeah, it's kind of, yep. you can't expect to say, I'm going to follow this plan to a T because it's just things happen. Right. And sometimes you just need someone who's kind of looking at it a little more objectively yeah. than you and maybe isn't as emotionally invested. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but you bring up a good point and that is that, you know, how do you adjust your training if an injury does come up or something mm -hmm. like that? And I think the key I always tell my, my athletes when I see them in the office is that this injury doesn't mean that you don't, that you stop training, right? I mean, 
yes, maybe you're not running, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe you're not doing running training, mm -hmm. but there's these things called the bike or the pool or even a rowing machine or, you know, ellipticals, uh, ultra G treadmill, you know, an anti-gravity treadmill that maybe you can do some running that's unweighted a little bit. And, and I always uh, counsel them that, Hey, you still want to maintain fitness. You don't want to lose fitness. But on the other hand, if I have a runner who comes to me and they have a little injury that's going to kind of knock them out of their last couple weeks of training for a marathon, and they're just really you know upset about the fact they're not going to get their long run in, sometimes it just turns into a counseling session of me saying, <laughs> hey, it's going to be okay if you don't run a step between now and towing the starting line, the work's been done. Mm -hmm. Because it really is, after you've been training for a while, it takes about a week or two for your body to really fully... Uh, change and adapt to all the work you've been doing. So let's say you, you know, just think of it as an, uh, an extended taper. That's you know, right. Some people have had their best races because they got a little injury and didn't run much the last two or three weeks before a marathon and then ran a PR because their body was actually recovered and rested. Do you do two week or three week taper? It's usually about a two week taper. Okay. Yeah. I, don't, I usually try to get in a, still a pretty decent long run workout you know, a couple weeks before and then kind of start the taper from there. See, I'm seeing that a lot now. Like a lot of the coaches I know, like Mary Johnson, uh, Lauren Flores, they're um, two of my good friends that coach. I think they, I mean, they don't for every person they coach, but they generally do that two week taper. And I generally do a three week taper. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's again, utilizing what we know about physiology. Yeah. It takes about two weeks, you know, 10 to 14 days for your body to really absorb all the work you've been doing. And so three weeks is probably just a little too long. Okay. You probably start to get into a detraining mode a little bit and losing a little bit of fitness. I guess it's just athlete by athlete. Too. It is. It is. Because I also, um, I don't do well running long every seven days. Mm -hmm. Like my body, I know that the training is like, like you said, you're breaking your you're breaking things down so that then you can really excel in race day. But if I do a long run on like a Saturday and then the next Saturday I try to go out and do another successful long run, it's just not pretty. If I mm -hmm. can get to 10 days, mm -hmm. then I feel like my body is far enough away, but not too far away. Right, right. But that's, I know that's not realistic for most people with their schedules. Maybe not, but that's knowing your body. That's and, knowing your body. And that's, that's the key. I mean, you got to know what works for you. And maybe for some people, a three week taper works great for them. Yeah. Maybe some people it's, it's a, it's a maybe 10 day taper that works yeah, for them, you know? And so I've it really is. Too, yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, we all are a, a single experiment unto ourselves. You know, we're always kind of experimenting on, on ourselves as to what works best and finding that, you know, uh, that magic formula <laughs> that allows you to finish strong on race day and feel good about your results. That's tough with marathoning though, because it's like, man, trial and error with marathoning. That's such a long time to train in a long race to then that's say, true. Oh, we do three week taper. Then we do two, which one worked better. You know, it's like so many, months and years honestly right, right. okay but that's why having the the long pers long range perspective mm -hmm. is key i think some people get so fixated on this one race and you know it's the end of the world if this one race doesn't go well and you have to realize that i mean it takes a good couple years of consistent training to really kind of see the benefit of of doing uh, that can, that kind of consistent training, you know, at several cycles of marathon training is what it's going to take to really kind of, I think, reach your, your mm -hmm. full potential. So be, be patient out there, people. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I'm excited. I've had four babies in seven years, and this is the first time that I've ever had the ability since I started having babies to like 
have that build. Right. Because I, I always run a marathon or two and then I get pregnant and then I'm back to square one. And man, it's just a really long building process. Yeah. And after you've had a baby, you know, your body is just not the same. And yeah. Unfortunately, I often see, um, you know, mother runners who, who come in uh, six months after having a baby and, and their body is breaking down because mm-hmm. they've tried to get back into marathon training too soon. And, you know, again, your, your body produces this hormone called relaxin during pregnancy. And you know this, I don't need to mansplain it to you, but, um, you know, it, it loosens all your joints and it affects your weight, your strength of your muscles. And, and it takes time for that to all kind of like come back together. And you kind of have to do some purposeful strength training, I think, first and some cross training before you really start to get back into running, you know, coming off of a pregnancy to People avoid injury. People jump in too right? fast. I mean, I... Which is understandable. It's they want they want to yeah. lose the weight. They want to get healthy yeah. again. They want to get back to racing. It's understandable. Um, I ran a marathon four months postpartum. Wow. After Marshall, and wow. it was not great. I don't know how my body. Like I did a four months, and then I did another one at six months, and I did another one at nine months. I was, I think I was like I was fighting this like um, anxiety and fear I had in another department of my life with the running. Um, and I don't know if it was just an age thing or I just got lucky that mm-hmm. I didn't get injured. Um, cause I know for a fact I couldn't do that now. Right. You know, I right. mean, four months postpartum, psh, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, but, and, yeah. and I've learned more, like I didn't know any of that. I remember seeing Brian Sheeter out on the Monon, um, when Mar- I was pushing him in a stroller, it was like three months and I was out on like a 17 mile run. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and he was like shaking his head like you, I don't want to see you, you know, and, and at St. Vincent and this is, I see so many moms postpartum who just go out too fast, too soon and end up with a stress fracture. Right. Right. And it's, yeah, unfortunately I've, I've seen that multiple times. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, being, being patient and, and doing the little things as far as the strength training and, um, and maybe some building and some cross training and maybe you start out with kind of the three days a week running and mixing in the cross training, then slowly add a fourth day and then eventually a fifth day, whatever you, you know, whatever your marathon training calls for, whatever your body, you know, uh, adapts to. Okay. Well, let's wrap up with some end of the podcast questions. This is a special little series, but I still like, I have to keep to my rhythm. It's what I do. So, Dr. Carey, what is one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Well, I've kind of mentioned maybe already one of those things personally, and that is the six star. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a good it's a goal for me that I have and I'd like to run all six marathon majors. So, like I said, I'm uh, hoping to get number four at Berlin and then I just have two to go, London and Tokyo. So that would be one personal goal. And um no time frame on it. I just would like to get it done. Is the Berlin trip, will you take your wife? Will you take your kids? Will it be solo? My wife and I are both going to go. So, yeah, <laughs> kids yeah. are staying kids home. Kids are staying home for now. They really want to travel, but uh, that does get expensive. So yeah, yeah, just my wife and I are going to go. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like the three plane tickets, the three extra plane tickets. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? I would say... I'm certainly proud of the fact that I became a sports medicine doctor. I do yes. think, you know, obviously that's germane to our discussion today about sports medicine. But, you know, again, I going into college, I thought I was maybe going to be a physical therapist or maybe an athletic trainer. And and then through just some people that inspired me and, and gave me opportunities and chances, 
I sort of took a risk and said, you know, okay, I only had one year left of college when I decided this and kind of said, I'm just going to go for it because there's no better time in life than now. And, uh, and then I, and then I went through all that hard work and training and, and over the years. And so, yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And it's, it's pretty rewarding and satisfying work. It's, I'm passionate about what I do. I love what I do. And that keeps it from feeling like a job and, uh, makes me enjoy it. When you were in your, um, residency or doing their rotations, what, what department of medical were you like, Oh, I could never do that. Yeah. Good question. Um, well, when I was trying to decide whether I wanted to do non-surgical sports medicine or surgical sports medicine, I kind of decided that standing for long hours in the operating room and operating on people was, was not something I wanted to do, you know, and, and all the phone calls afterwards and emergencies and, you know, that, you know, kind of trauma surgery, all that kind of stuff. I, I knew that I probably wasn't cut off for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the best, most recent book you've read? I do like reading books. Okay. So there's several, but I think, um, one that I really enjoyed because it gave me a new perspective and I learned something I, I didn't really know anything about and was actually, it's actually a true story, uh, in, in sort of a historical, uh, nonfiction was, um, the track in the forest by Bob Burns. Okay. And it's about the 1968 Olympic team and how they just built a track in the forest of the Sierra Nevadas out by Lake Tahoe and took the whole team out there. And they literally had these huge pine trees in the infield of this track. And it, it was an interesting time in terms of, um, racial justice and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the 68 Olympics were in New Mexico, were in uh, Mexico, Mexico city. Um, so it's just some really interesting history and a really good read. If you like the Olympic movement and running and track and field. Oh, cool. Yeah. What's a nonprofit you like to support? Is that on my list? We've supported, yeah, we've supported, um, uh, food for the hungry for a long time. We were at a, an event one time and one of my daughters picked up a, uh, one of those packets and this little boy's face, you know, was on there and, and she came over to me and said, can we please dad, mm-hmm. can we please support this, this kid? And so, um, we have been, uh, you know, monthly supporters of that, uh, organization for, for years now and uh, they do good work. I'm a big advocate of like finding a place to be like a monthly supporter of because the one-time donations are awesome and great. But I think that a lot of times those organizations are looking for like that. Who are my people that are like always there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's hard to commit to that though. It feels like a little bit scary sometimes, but right. that's awesome. Yeah. And that's so cool that your daughter inspired it. Yeah. She was all her. I mean, she really said, Hey, I want to do this. And that's so cool. Like, okay. Let's go for it. Okay. If you could have coffee, tea, cocktail, whatever, with someone fun, motivating or inspiring, who would it be? Well, since we're talking about running, I would have to say that I am inspired by Elwood Kipchoge. Okay. I mean, who can't be? Yeah. The guy is like the Zen master of running. He has so many like wise things to say and he just seems to enjoy what he does. I just think it would be super fascinating to just sit down and have tea with him and just pick his brain and talk to him and just gather wisdom from him. He's just an amazing athlete and seems like an amazing person. Yeah. He seems like he's got like a really kind spirit. Yes, he does. For sure. Yeah. All right, Dr. Carey, what's your one message to send to the world? I would say, um, I would say challenge yourself because I feel like 
that's where I've been able to achieve goals and and accomplish things I didn't think I'd be able to accomplish by saying, all right, I'm going to challenge myself by setting this goal and working towards it and putting in the daily work and uh, see if I can get there. So I would just encourage everybody to, to challenge yourself. I think, I think we can all do more than we think we can. Mm. Um, and sometimes we don't think we've got it in us, but I think we all do deep inside. And so I would say challenge yourself. Okay. Can I ask you a selfish question? Sure. How do you teach that to your kids? I I love talking to parents who've kind of like you, your kids are a little bit older than mine. And that's something I like really want to instill in my kids. So is there anything you say or do to instill that in them? I think we try to give them opportunities to challenge themselves. Mm. So sometimes it's not so much what you say, but kind of what you do. And so for example, taking my daughter on a backpacking trip where she just thinks, oh, backpacking trip, that <laughs> sounds like fun. And she doesn't realize that there are going to be some things that happen during that backpacking yeah. trip that are going to challenge her in ways that she doesn't even realize, like having to climb up these rocks and and get over a, a, a river and, and do some things that are going to take her outside of her comfort zone. And so, yeah, you know, leading by example can help for sure. And so my kids see me, you know, setting goals for myself and challenging myself. And I think that helps too, but also just providing opportunities Mm -hmm. for things that you know might challenge your kids or take them out of their comfort zone is I think a better way, a more practical way to do it than, than saying, Oh, you should do this. You should do this. We should sign you up for this. When they're saying, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know? And so that would be my advice. That's so good. Yeah. I, um, I think that I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I was listening to a podcast where a woman was talking about like, Oh, we take our kids on trips and stuff not because it's easy, but like, so they can like experience these little, little, little hardships of like maybe a little bit of sleep deprivation or what, you know, whatever. And I'm thinking, Oh, I don't want to provide them with anything that's going to make my life more miserable right? because you don't want to hear your kids complain, but it's kind of like a disservice to your kids. I'm not saying that kids that get to travel all over the place aren't really fortunate kids, but to just put them in positions where they're going to be uncomfortable so that they can learn what to do when they're not uncomfortable, when they're not comfortable. Right. Like for example, again, on the backpacking trip, like her learning how to start a fire, Yeah, you know, saying, I don't know how to start a fire. Okay, well let's, let's learn and going through it and her kind of being successful at that and seeing her smile. And, and that's sort of just a, that's just a check in the confidence mm-hmm. box and a check in the new experience box. And, and uh, those are just little challenges that, you know, again, throughout the course of a year or over the years, you can just kind of try to find those little opportunities. Yeah. It's really easy for us to, um, make our kids' lives really easy. I mean, they're going to be where we live. We're very fortunate. It's going to be easy, but I think that finding those opportunities is really important. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Dr. Care. I'm really excited to get this series out to everybody. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in today. Thank you, Dr. Carey, for sharing your knowledge with us and sitting down with me, giving us an hour of your time. And thank you for being such a great voice in the sports medicine world here in Indianapolis and around the country and world. We are thankful to have you here and just very appreciative of your work. Don't forget, you guys can find Dr. Carey on Twitter. He is at Dr. Carey. That's Carey with a K, K K-A-R-Y. You can find St. Vincent on Twitter. 
and Instagram at Defining Sports. And you can find me. I'm Lindsay Hine 626 on Instagram, Lindsay Hine on Twitter, and I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine on Facebook where we have a group as well. Links to everything we talked about will be in the show notes, lindsayhine.com. If you're new to the podcast, you came through the St. Vincent series, stick around, subscribe to the show. Tomorrow you are getting an episode with a woman who is amazing. Her name is Amanda, and she qualified for Boston last weekend after having that as a goal for 20 years. It's going to be a really inspiring story. And we've got a back catalog of hundreds of interviews with both professional elite Olympic and everyday runners. So I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. And I'll see you tomorrow.